KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today we are talking about the celebration of pride here in San Diego, despite attacks on LGBTQ rights. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. What are the larger implications of the Supreme Court's decision on LGBTQ rights? I think that anyone and everyone should be deeply concerned that our nation's highest court essentially said that it's okay to serve or not serve someone based on simply having different beliefs. Plus, how one award-winning artist is raising trans voices, and a local library's pride display was the target of anti-LGBTQ protests. But the celebration goes on. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. San Diego's Pride Parade is this Saturday, and it's happening against the backdrop of the Supreme Court ruling recently, which limits LGBTQ protections. The court sided with a Christian web developer in a ruling earlier this month. Then here locally, a pair of protesters attempted to sabotage a pride display at the Rancho Penasquitos Library by checking out all of the included books. Joining us now to discuss the bigger picture of LGBTQ plus rights in America, as well as how the community can be supported locally, is Executive Director of San Diego Pride, Fernando Lopez. And Fernando, welcome to Midday Edition again. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. So I want to start first with this Supreme Court ruling that I just mentioned. What are your thoughts on that and its impact? Well, you know, this has been a long time coming. 303 creative ruling was in no way surprising, but the immediate impact is both a practical and a social one. And I think that anyone and everyone should be deeply concerned that our nation's highest court essentially said that it's okay to serve or not serve someone based on simply having different beliefs. You know, from a practical standpoint, this isn't just an LGBTQ issue. Christians, straight people, people of faith, any minority community, anyone should be concerned that really this is coming from the nation's highest court saying we think differently, we believe differently. And because of that, you can be denied service, which for most people seems antithetical to the values of the First Amendment. And so really, the court didn't just fail the LGBT community. They failed the American public. And from our LGBTQ-specific perspective, in a year where over uh, over 700 anti-LGBTQ pieces of legislation have been entered into 49 different states, it sends this devastating message that somehow our lives are expendable, that you can ignore us or refuse treatment just because you believe something different. And that causes real emotional harm to LGBTQ people, in particular, our youth. But what's probably more disconcerting 
is that it also provides a license for folks to discriminate in ways that can dehumanize us and too often have dire consequences. So I, I think there's a lot to be concerned about with this court case. And at one point, the court had been bolstering protections for the LGBTQ plus community rather than chipping away at them. Are you concerned that this represents any kind of reversal in that regard, especially when you look at what's happening across the country? Oh, certainly. I I think we're all very clear that there was uh, a trajectory in a positive direction that was definitely supporting our rights, right? This is the 10-year anniversary, uh, just like last week or so, uh, of the uh, ruling that gave us marriage equality in the state of California. Or 20 years ago, uh, just a couple weeks ago, was the ruling that decriminalized just being LGBTQ in the United States. And so we were moving in this positive direction, but really what we're seeing is um, the impacts of Trump-appointed officials Um, And the gamification of the court system that has really had us moving in uh, the wrong direction, of course, from our perspective. Here locally, as we mentioned, a pride exhibit at the Rancho Penasquitos Library was effectively ruined after protesters checked out all of its books. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, honestly, well played. They, They tried and they epically failed. And I think it's really sad indication of what's going on in your personal life when you seek to actively harm other people. The great news is, is that it backfired. And so what we saw out of that is a really concerted effort from our council member, openly LGBT council member, Marnie Von Wilpert, in conjunction with the Library Foundation out of San Diego to raise some money to replace those books. And the great news is they have raised at least, to my knowledge, over $12,000, which is more than enough books to not only replace those that were checked out, but to ensure that all 36 libraries in our region have LGBT pride displays and literature and access all across the region. And so I really appreciate that about our community, that when we're under attack, uh, that we're able to come together and find solutions that ultimately lead to a benefit for our community. And and so it was really an exceptional thing to see come out of that really sort of silly, stupid act on their part. And what do you think that, that that community support says about support for the LGBTQ plus community here in San Diego? You know, San Diego County, unfortunately, is a hub for hate groups and white supremacist groups but it's also simultaneously rated as America's most tolerant city. And I think that is an actual reflection of the American population. As we're seeing rise in hate across the country, we are also seeing people step up to the plate, whether that's seeing added attention from our media outlets or law enforcement officers or elected officials ensuring that they are stepping up to keep our community safe in these extreme moments. And so while we're countering these anti-LGBTQ laws and legislation or direct acts of protest and violence against our community, really those sort of attitudes, while maybe in alignment with folks like Ron DeSantis or Marjorie Taylor Greene, are out of step with American values and the American public. Over 80% of Americans believe that LGBTQ people should have full protection under the law in the United States. And I think you see that reflected here in San Diego community as a vast majority of San Diegans support their LGBTQ neighbors, their coworkers, and of course, our families. 
You're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. I'm speaking with Fernando Lopez, Executive Director of San Diego Pride. And Fernando, I want to shift gears here to talk a little bit about actually celebrating Pride here. Uh, Can you remind us why San Diego's Pride Parade is held in July instead of June? Yeah, absolutely. No one likes June gloom, right? Uh, (laughs) Correct. (laughs) (laughs) But so in the 80s, the early 80s, our community was a lot smaller and we didn't have the same capacity or resources that we have today. So San Diego Pride is actually one of the founders of the international pride body called Interpride, where prides all over the world seek to support one another and building capacity for each other. And so when the time came in the 80s to sort of say, how does that happen? What does that look like? There was a real strategic choice of major cities all over the world to start putting their pride events on different days. And that was a method to help encourage Uh, different activists and organizers from different cities to be able to go from city to city to build political power, to build the capacity of our community and ensure that all of us were supported. And so when that opportunity came up, um, our pride in June had been almost rained out a few times and no one liked June gloom. So we happily said, hey, let's move to July. Uh, And so we've been there ever since. And it's uh, obviously the weather, if you're looking at this weekend, is much better than it was June uh, here in San Diego. And uh, and on another note, we're really excited that this October, we actually get to host the 40th anniversary of the International Conference here in San Diego this October. You know, with what we talked about earlier, what do you think some of the best ways are to support the LGBTQ plus community and increase visibility? You know, I think really it's incumbent upon each and every one of us to assess that for ourselves. I think visibility is a really easy baseline, right? Showing a rainbow flag or a rainbow sticker icon during Pride season or all year round just to show that you are a safe space for folks or a safe ally for people. But what we really are looking for is both active allyship and equity. And so what active allyship looks like is, are you volunteering? Are you donating? Are you showing up in those moments in your day-to-day life that are really difficult when you see hate, discrimination, or bias playing out, whether you're an educator, a faith leader, a business owner, whatever that looks like, if it's at your family dinner table or at their grocery store, how are you an active participant in showing up to put a stop to discrimination and supporting the LGBTQ community. The other piece is equity, and equity means investment, and oftentimes financial investment or equitable policies. And too often what we see is LGBTQ folks cut out of diversity, equity, inclusion work because people aren't necessarily tracking SOGI data or sexual orientation and gender identity data. So when we're doing policy reform, when we're doing equitable investment work, we need to make sure that we fully understand that LGBTQ people are disproportionately impacted by a whole host of microsocial and macrosocial factors that are deserving of investment. And so I think that's really what we're looking for is active allyship and genuine equity work. In light of these recent blows to LGBTQ rights and protections, what's your biggest hope for the community moving forward? I really hope that this serves as a wake-up call, and I really think it is. Uh, I've heard so much new energy from our LGBT community, our activists, and our allies saying that this hate simply will not stand. And as somebody who worked to help fight Proposition 8 in 2008 that took away our marriage rights, 
too frequently we would hear here in San Diego and all across California, oh, this will never pass, this will never happen, California is so progressive. And what we need to ensure that actually happens is that we show up for each other. We're just one bad Supreme Court ruling away from losing marriage in the state of California. So I really do hope that folks use this as a wake-up call to realize it's it's time and past time to engage in this work, and this work must be intersectional. I think we're all fighting the same fight, whether it is the attacks on voting rights, Uh, the attacks on critical race theory, the attacks on communities of color, abortion protection, reproductive justice, immigrant rights, or affirmative action, we're all fighting the same fight. And really what we're fighting is the rise of white supremacy, white nationalism, and this uh, fascist sentiment that we see rising all over the world. But right now, the battles that we're facing are not new. We've been fighting these same tired old lies and misinformation battles for a long time. So I hope that people come out, they support, they volunteer, or they donate to an LGBT organization that is deeply in that work, like San Diego Pride or any of the other wonderful nonprofits that are out there. I think we've all realized this year that now more more than ever, it is really time for Pride. So I hope folks come out and celebrate this weekend. And for people who want to get involved this weekend in Pride festivities, how can they do that? Where do they start? Well, the easiest place to start is at our website, sdpride.org. And I would say sdpride.org slash volunteer or slash tickets. Every single way that you support this organization is something that helps to support the year-round education and advocacy organization that that we do all throughout the year. Uh, San Diego Pride is also the most philanthropic pride in the world. So when you come to the event, when you volunteer, when you donate, when you buy a ticket or uh, beverage, you're supporting that incredible work of this organization. And I couldn't be more grateful to our attendees and our volunteers. I've been speaking with Fernando Lopez, Executive Director of San Diego Pride. And uh, Fernando, thank you so much for joining us. Happy Pride. Thank you so much for having me. Happy Pride. What do you think of the Supreme Court's ruling? Give us a call at 619-452-0228. You can leave a message or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. Coming up, San Diego's public library director weighs in after efforts to suppress a pride exhibit. What I tried to, you know, explain that she was absolutely entitled to her beliefs, but not entitled to remove materials Um, that other people might want to read. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome back to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Last month, two anti-LGBTQ plus protesters checked out everything in the Pride display at the Rancho Penasquitos Library branch. One emailed saying she wouldn't return the books until the library got rid of what she called, quote, inappropriate content for children. KPBS reporter Katie Heisen sat down with the San Diego Public Library Director Misty Jones to speak about the incident and the recent challenges to book access. 
So we always celebrate um, Pride and we do a lot of Pride displays in all of our branch libraries and we had one at Rancho Penasquitos um, and I got an email that from a patron that um, she and her friend had checked out the entire Pride display, all of the books, um, because they did not agree with it and really said that they were not going to return them unless we um, said that we would take the Pride display down and actually get rid of the books permanently. How did you respond? I, you know, I really, it was upsetting. It was, this was a first for me. We've had, you know, people that have complained about one book or, you know, things like that. We've had, you know, drag queen story times and we've had people call or email saying they don't agree with it. But this is the first time I've ever had someone like completely decimate a display. Um, and, and, you know, basically email and say, I'm not returning your book. So that was new for me. So I took the opportunity to really try to explain why we do um, pride displays and why we celebrate different cultures and different communities. And this was no different than celebrating, you know, African-American History Month or, you know, Asian-American, you know, Hispanic Heritage Month. It, it was no different. We're celebrating a culture, a community. Um, this is the, the time that we celebrate that and really, you know, kind of stressing that San Diego Public Library, libraries are about inclusivity and we're about everyone being able to find themselves in the library. And so that's really, um, you know, it's what I tried to, you know, explain um, that she was absolutely entitled to her beliefs, but not entitled to remove materials um, that other people might want to read. Can you speak more to the library's role in fostering inclusivity and why that matters in the public library system in particular? It's, um, it, that is really what we're all about, is really about inclusion. Um, it's about celebrating diversity. It's celebrating not only what we have in common, but also our differences. And I really feel like, you know, I always say the library is the great equalizer. It kind of levels the playing field for everyone. It's where anybody can come regardless of their circumstance and they have an opportunity to learn something new. And it might be something that challenges their beliefs. And that's what it's about. It's about getting that information, expanding your horizons of a different perspective besides yours. And I feel like that's how we grow as a society. That's how we become more tolerant. We become... Um, kind of one with each other is to to learn about each other and what better place this is a safe place for people you know you can check out that book and you can take it home and you can digest it you can learn you know go to a different cultural program or um, you know that's really what we we want to do we want to we want to encourage people to have those conversations even if they're difficult conversations what are the library's options and how to respond so when someone does something like checks all the books out, what practically can you do? Well, it's not, it's definitely not against the rules to check out books. Um, the only thing that's gonna happen is if they don't return them, they will eventually have to pay for them. So we do, um, we have a really, you know, very generous um, checkout policy. Uh, we, you know, you get automatic renewals, auto renewals, as long as no one has put that book on hold and is waiting for it. Um, but once they're due, uh, you have 30, you have 60 days before you're sent to collections if you don't return them. So it really could end up, which would be a shame, um, you know, to end up in collections, particularly for 
checking out books that you don't agree with. I'm not really. <laughs> I guess I don't understand, you know, the logic of why you would go that far is to end up paying for books um, on a subject matter you don't agree with, but that's eventually what will happen. <laughs> How are, I heard there were fundraising efforts to replace the book. How are mm -hmm. those going? Yeah, so it's interesting. I was actually at the Rancho Penasquitos Library on Monday, and you should see the stack of Amazon <laughs> boxes that they have of people who are purchasing the books to replace them. Uh, our library foundation is having an ongoing fundraising effort. They are uh, really getting inundated. Council District 5, uh, Marty Van Wilpert's office, is getting you know inundated with calls and emails. We don't have the final tally yet. We still, those donations are still coming in. So if anybody wants to contribute, please uh, go to the Library Foundation's website um, and contribute. But we're, we're just seeing this huge, you know, increase in, in or, or people just reaching out, um, emailing, calling, dropping in. We've had people come into the library that have never been to the library before, but they're coming in to donate a book and getting a library card while they're there. You know, so <laughs> it's really been an amazing response. You mentioned to the Union Tribune that it's gotten progressively worse in the last five years. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so I really think that it's become, as the country's become more divided, and we all know, um, we're starting really to, you know, these are things, we, the Rancho Penasquitos Library has had a pride display every year for probably 10 years. Um, some of them have been really, you know, um, you know, they've, you know, been really involved, big, you know, with balloons and things. This was, this one was literally a flag with the word pride across. So it was not um, a huge display, uh, but we've never gotten a complaint before until this year. And that's what we're seeing as, as we've had drag queen story times, we've had pride story times for years. We've always had inclusive books. We've always had something that is probably offensive. I, I always said the library a good library has something that offends everyone, right? So you, oh, there's always something. Um, but the last five years is when we're really starting to get um, the emails, the calls, the people not agreeing. And it's not, it hasn't just been, I don't agree with that, why are you doing that? It's been really hateful language. And I think that's what's changed. Um, we've always had challenges, but we've never had kind of the personal attacks against um, our librarians, uh, you know, really um, people just calling really outraged and, and just using very hateful and divisive language. And we're seeing that, I mean, it's, it's happening across the country and it's, it's really sad. There have been movements to ban books in school libraries. Many of those have been successful. I'm wondering if that's impacted the public library system at all. It has, you know, and, and what we're seeing is it's really, you know, public libraries are responding to that because in a school library, it's a more, you know, it's a narrower, they don't have, you know, and, and when they have a school board, they really have to follow with the school board. And so we have found that we're having a lot of people reaching out to us to get those materials that they can't get in schools any longer. And that's across the nation, probably seen, which is just like, the it's a horror movie to me to see the videos of just piles and piles of books being taken out to recycle bins and dumpsters. And it, it's like, it breaks my heart, it's devastating. Um, but we are looking at what can we do? We know we're in a privileged, 
you know, space here in San Diego. We don't have the challenges that other places are seeing. Um, and so we're looking at how can we also be a support nationally? And, you know, there are places right here in Cal, you know, in California. California is not immune to this as, you know, evidenced. I never really, you know, it was like, you don't think this is going to happen in San Diego, but it does. You're talking about uh, ways that you can support places elsewhere in the country. Are there any concrete ideas you're excited about? Yeah, so we're looking. Brooklyn Public Library started um, really a movement called um, Unbanned Books, and so they boosted their e-book collection to be able to offer it um, to other, you know, um, states to, you know, kids, particularly the young adult, the, you know, children and young adult collection to be able to offer it to to kids in other states and Seattle Public Library just joined that movement. So we've been looking at that. Um, we've been looking at, you know, just really it's about just reaching out. You know, my, where I started my career in Greenville County Library is facing this now. And so it's, it's really very personal to me. Um, they've actually in Greenville banned the word banned. Uh, which, <laughs> so you can't do. And then, you know, because, and then they said you can't do displays at all. So it's, so you're hurting everyone because of an ideology, you, you don't agree with something. And so you're gonna, you're gonna punish everyone, um, making sure that people are paying attention to this and, and talking like this, getting the word out, making sure that people understand what is happening. Because I, I really think that, um, when you don't pay attention, then that's, you know, something can happen and, and you're caught off guards. Is there anything else you want to add? I truly do believe that people have, they have the right to believe the way that they want. The problem is that you can't push your beliefs onto other people that may not believe the same way that you do. And that's where the issue comes. And so by checking out all of the books, um, because she didn't agree with them, she's denied an entire community from access to those books. And it may be some, a book that somebody needs that day. Somebody needs to see that the book trans like me there is a teenager that is struggling that that book could make a difference for. And by removing that book, you have taken potentially that lifeline away from that person. And that's what I'm trying to, you know, really trying to impart is absolutely you are, you have every right to believe the way that you want to, but please don't deny someone else access to something that could change their life, you know, could set them on the right path. And that's why I've struggled so much with this is you just, you know, take what you believe and, you know, and but don't don't push that on somebody else because you could really be doing harm that you don't realize more harm than what you intended. That was KPBS reporter Katie Heisen speaking with San Diego's public library director, Misty Jones. Coming up, the conversation continues with an award-winning artist who's raising trans voices. 
what I'm doing is really working on fiercely empowering trans voices, you know, and non-binary voices to love their voice and to use them, you know, sing out. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Welcome back. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. San Diego Pride will recognize several community leaders at this week's festival. One of those annual awards is the Larry T. Baza Arts and Culture Award, named after the local longtime arts and LGBTQ advocate who passed away in 2021. This year's recipient is Lindsay Deaton, a local musician, playwright, and conductor who is a leading expert on the transgender singing voice. She's founder and artistic director of the San Diego Queer Youth Course. And before that, she founded the Trans Course of Los Angeles. Lindsay, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you, Jade. I'm so delighted to be with you today. So glad to have you. So Let's start with your background. You're a musician and you'd been a conductor for decades before your transition. Would you mind sharing with us a little about that journey? Surely. So I am a child of the border. I grew up here in San Diego and later graduated from San Diego State with a degree in classical guitar studying with Celine Romero. And um, while I was at San Diego State, I you know, just fell in love with with choral music, orchestra music, and one day picked up a baton and started studying hard while I was at SDSU and was fortunate enough to get a uh, scholarship to go to Carnegie Mellon. And then on to New York, where I, I did some studies at Juilliard. And after my MFA, I was fortunate to go to the Aspen Music School and then moved to New York, where I was a conductor with the Hudson Valley Philharmonic. It was in that capacity that I and my family moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, and ended up sticking there for 30 years. We raised a family there. And while there, I began a new vocation, if you will, working for the Catholic Church. And I was a cathedral music director for a decade when in my mid-50s, I transitioned. And uh, it was a brutal experience in terms of my jobs. I lost them all and we lost our house, but I was fortunate to be able to maintain my marriage. And my wife had a good job with Kroger and my children kept me. And so that's the, the long version of the transition. In San Diego, growing up in the 60s and 70s, I never saw a person uh, who looked like me, you know, or who resembled me or that I could in any way um, relate to. And, you know, at, at that point in my life, I was always asked, you know, are you gay? And that was my cognitive dissonance, you know, is that I definitely did not like guys, you know, and I loved girls and I just wanted to dress like them and be them. And so, you know, growing up culturally uh, here in San Diego post, you know, Korean War and through the Vietnam War, it was a different time. 
I mean, how has that experience influenced the work you do today? Well, Jade, it informs me with an incredible sense of urgency. I am going to be 68 years old in September. You know, I would have thought that our country and our world would be in a much different place 10 years after my transition, Jade, and we're just not. Um, I'm very fortunate. I'm very privileged. You know, I'm a white trans woman um, who isn't often accosted or you know, traumatized with violence, that is not the same for my siblings, you know, especially for, you know, those who are in uh, the, the POC community. And it's getting worse every year, and it's getting worse for trans kids in particular. And so I just have a, an incredible sense of urgency, number one, on their safety, the uptick in suicides, the uptick in murders. You know, it was, it was last year that we read 50 names at the Transgender Day of Remembrance on November 20th. And that had been more than double the names that we were reading before. And, you know, if you think about it, 50 people being murdered in this country for who they are is incredibly, incredibly debilitating for everybody in our community, including trans kids. They see what's going on. You know, they know what's going on here. They see it. Yeah. And, you know, given all that, can you talk about why you've committed to studying the transgender singing voice? I mean, is there a lot of research? Well, there is now. I'm glad you asked that question. So when I started back in um, 2014, there was no, nobody was doing dissertations for few. There were few, like two. Now, you know, academia is rife with, you know, new dissertations and thesis on, on trans voices, non-binary voices, et cetera. And, you know, where I, I work is in the practical application. You know, how, how do we sing, you know, and, and how do we sing like we feel best? And what needs to happen so that happens, right? And uh, you can hear my voice right now. And my vocal cords have been subjected to testosterone, right? And so as soon as a vocal cord is, you know, hit with testosterone, it lengthens and thickens and the register lowers. It's science how this happens. And with science, we know that with estrogen, the opposite does not happen. You know, once a, a vocal cord lengthens and, and uh, thickens, that's what it is. Except now we have new methods of surgery that, that some trans folks are opting for. And in my experience, the people that I know who are really cared for that have gone through that are very, very discouraged, um, have been through a lot of vocal reconstructions, aren't able to sing anymore. And so, you know, what I'm, I'm doing is really working on fiercely empowering trans voices, you know, and non-binary voices to love their voice and to use them, you know, sing out and, you know, back into the academia part of our art, you know, I, I'm white, I'm uh, a child of colonists, right? And the music that I grew up in was primarily European English right? And so as we grow up here in the United States, the textbooks that are used by and large come out of Texas, and they're absolutely white-centric, patriarchal. And so the music that we grow up with, that we teach our children, has a great deal of influence on how they are socialized generally. 
And fortunately, there's new, you know, methodologies of teaching music like Carl Orff or Zoltan Kodai or Jacques Dalcroze that incorporate the whole body, you know, in teaching and, you know, aren't necessarily dependent on that Western ideal because the world is filled with glorious music. So that's my role then is to how do I help my community love their voice, find music that speaks to where they're at and what they need to say, right? And then working with composers who understand that our voices might not necessarily fall into the old uh, Western categories of soprano, alto for high voices, tenor and bass for low voices. Uh, you know, it it will be a, a time moving in the future where it will be high voice, middle high voice, you know, middle low voice or something like that. But right now, you know, musicians are faced with a library of published music that has copyrights or is in the public domain. And for money reasons, it's, nobody's going to go back and, and rework those catalogs. So when you put music in front of a trans person and they automatically are confronted with the binary, where do I fit? Right. And so that's the story of, of our musicians' lives. And so how do I change that? Yeah, that's so very interesting. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman, speaking with Lindsay Deaton, artistic director, conductor, and a leader in the global trans choral movement. Lindsay, you also premiered a new play last fall, The Trans Vagina Diaries. Tell us about that project. Well, it's a project that we we had our first version back in 2020. We were in workshop for eight weeks up in West Hollywood, and we had our dress rehearsal, and we got to our tech and dress on Thursday, March 12th, and then we were closed down by the city of West Hollywood because of the pandemic. And, you know, we, we were told initially, you know, the city will be closed for a couple of weeks, but it wasn't. And so on April the 4th of that year, we had a Zoom production and we got the cast, you know, who are also the writers to get on Zoom, just like we are here, and uh, do our show. And so with that version, um, the Trans Vagina Diaries featured 12 trans, non-binary, um, BIPOC folks who shared stories. And, you know, for years, these stories have been shunned. They're taboo. They're private. And any, you know, attempt to share them has always been met with violence. And, uh, you know, it's my role as an artistic director and a creator for, you know, to help trans folks take their voices back and to be able to speak freely and clearly about our bodies. And um, fortunately, this last November, we were with the co-sponsorship of the City of West Hollywood and the production of Hollywood National Organization for Women. Uh, we were able to do the first live production in the City of West Hollywood City Council Chambers. And uh, it was pared down to, to seven writer performers this time. And we are in our third, you know, evolution this coming November. We're going to be back in city council chambers in West Hollywood. And we've uh, adjusted our title to just Trans Diaries. And it provides us a little bit more spaciousness for joyful and funny stories. And so it's not all about what's going on between our legs. However, Jade, it is what's going on between our legs that's getting our community murdered, especially Black trans women. 
Okay. Yeah. You know, you wrote this play amidst the onslaught of hundreds of pieces of anti-trans legislation that have been passed and are still being passed around the United States. What did that timing mean for this play? Well, it, again, it goes back to one of my core values of a sense of urgency. But right along those core values are providing the opportunity, the space, and the resources for voices who have been at risk and uh, are marginalized and, and are not seen or heard, and to provide them that space, right? That's first and foremost. The second is, you know, to welcome the assistance and support of organizations like the National Organization for Women and the City of West Hollywood and San Diego Pride and Diversionary Theater, right? These are all, you know, uh, very strong partners of mine. And uh, we're going to be able to do a reading of the Trans Diaries down here at Diversionary Theater, I hope sometime this fall, Jade. And so hopefully it will be coming to, to San Diego. And we're also working on a special um, so that folks, you know, who aren't necessarily in Southern California can have an opportunity to hear these stories and they re- provoke them to write their own. Hmm. And, you know, you also work with the youth and founded the San Diego Queer Youth Course. How do you build a safe space for young people to really express themselves artistically? Well, you know, first and foremost is being consistent and being available and not coming in with an agenda. And so one of the things that, you know, I learned working with young people coming out of the pandemic is that it's still hard to gather and kids here still don't feel safe. And it's not necessarily about the pandemic and it's much it's about everything else that's going on in the country and being fearful of being out in groups, right? So we have a every second Saturday of the month queer youth karaoke at the uh, Gordon Cabaret at um, the Diversionary Theater. And we have anywhere between 17 and 25 kids show up depending on the month. We've had one young person show up for all 17 months that we've been doing the karaoke and the songs that they choose really inform me what's going on. Mm -hmm. And um, it's amazing. They're amazing. And I think one of the biggest changes that I'm seeing Jade is the impact on parents and a nuclear family. You know, when I came out 10 years ago, back in Cincinnati, Ohio, Children's Hospital in Cincinnati only had 105 families that were in their trans kids program. And, you know, just about when I left, um, the city had gone through an incredible tragedy. We had 600 kids. There had been a a trans kid who committed a very difficult suicide for the region. And it gave everybody pause. It stopped everything in Cincinnati, Ohio. And it caused the, the city all of the media to really decide to understand how to get it right. And it started with name and pronouns. And so with my choruses, it's everybody has a name tag with their, their name, you know, whether it's your chosen name or it's your name Mm -hmm. and your pronouns for today. And um, 
We also always have food and we take a good break in the middle, whether it be pizza or lentil soup that my wife will make. I try to choose music and perform music with the kids that uh, speaks to them where they are right now. We had the great fortune of being supported by the Jason Mraz Foundation initially, and were able to perform with Jason and his band um, for Shine at the Spreckles Theater with two sold out audiences. And, you know, that has been really one of the highlights, I believe, of, of the chorus's experience so far in the last four years. And here we are. Yeah. I mean, and you'll receive San Diego Pride's Larry T. Baza Arts and Culture Award this Friday at the Spirit of Stonewall event. Um, what can you tell us about the award and, and what this recognition means to you? Well, absolutely humbled. And, you know, Larry T. Baza is an icon, uh, not only here in San Diego, Southern California and in Sacramento, but also in Washington, D.C. He, along with his spouse, had a fabulous art gallery downtown in Little Italy. Um, Larry was a commissioner, you know, of art for the county and then for the state. I happen to also be a commissioner. I am the first transgender appointed arts commissioner for the city of West Hollywood. And I serve on their Arts and Cultural Affairs Commission. And so I'm very grateful for that opportunity. And, uh, you know, that opportunity informs me of, of what we can do in my hometown here in San Diego, vis-a-vis like theater <laughs> and art and music. And so I'm, I'm very grateful to sort of have this two-city connection. But Larry T. Baza, you know, really set a place for, for, you know, people of color, for queer people in particular, that allowed a person like me to be able to receive award like this, right? I think, I think that's really something to share with our listeners is, you know, now is a lot different than it was back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, Jade. Mm-hmm. And c- coming out was not a thing that people did. You know, we, we were trampled beat up, murdered, and arrested, for God's sakes, if we wore other people's clothing, right? And so, you know, I'm just so incredibly humbled and grateful to all of the folks at San Diego Pride and in the community for recognizing Larry, first and foremost, the past recipients, including Matt Morrow, and the San Diego Women's Chorus. And I'm just, you know, thrilled. Yeah. And congratulations to you. I've been speaking with this year's recipient of the Larry T. Baza Arts and Culture Award, Lindsay Deaton. Lindsay, congratulations again to you. And thank you for talking with us this afternoon. Thank you for everything that you are and do, Jade and KPBS. Thank you. thoughts do you have about today's show? Give us a call at 619-452-0228, leave a message, or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. We'd love to share your ideas here on Midday Edition. Don't forget to watch Evening Edition tonight at 5 for in-depth reporting on San Diego issues and catch the roundtable tomorrow right here at noon. I want to thank our Midday Edition team. 
Harrison Patino, Andrew Bracken, and Juliana Domingo are the producers with the help of Ariana Clay. Adrian Villalobos and Rebecca Jacone are the technical directors. Beth Accomando and Julia Dixon Evans produce the arts segments. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend, everyone. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu.